This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet or visit esv.org to get started. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is brought to you by Crossing Borders, an organization helping North Korean refugees sold in China. Learn how Crossing Borders transforms the lives of trafficked North Korean women at www.crossingbordersnk.org. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Today's podcast is a workshop with Don Carson and Ligon Duncan on how pastors should make the move from exegesis to exposition as they prepare to teach the Bible. It was recorded at our 2019 National Conference in Indianapolis. Let me tell you how we're going to proceed. Uh, We're going to proceed primarily by looking at two passages, one from the Old Testament, one from the New And we'll begin with a brief presentation of the exegesis of one particular passage and then the exposition of the same passage and then do the same thing for the other testament. But along the line, we reserve the right to grill each other, ask rude questions and say, you know, you're you're kidding. (laughs) So let me begin with the first zinger. Do you really think we can separate out exegesis and uh, expository preparation? Yes and no in the sense sense that uh, for, for me, good exegesis is what gives me confidence that I understand the passage and can convey it faithfully to people. I mean, that's one reason I read commentaries. I don't want to be coming up with some novel interpretation of a passage on my own. I want to be confident that responsible exegetes have come to the same conclusions that I've come to so that I can be confident that I'm actually telling people what the Bible says. I also then want to start asking the question, okay, now that I know what the passage says, what's the best way to explain that to people? And so I think good exposition ought to be really closely tied to and flow out of exegesis. But asking the question, how do I preach this, can be a little bit different from asking, what does the text say? I really want to outline my teaching along the lines of the way that the biblical writer says it in the text. I think that keeps from from confusing people. You know, if you have a totally different exposition outline from the way the 
author did it, it can sometimes confuse the people as to where you're getting this from. So I really want to be informed by exegesis, but I am asking the question, how's the best way for me to explain this? And do you, in your own mind, always separate out for yourself those steps as two distinct steps? No, I'm, I'm the, yeah. they're constantly yeah, yes. interacting. Yes. From, the, from the minute I've read a passage... I'm already getting excited yeah. about certain parts of things in the passage, and I know, okay, that's got to come out when I'm preaching the passage. But I want to make sure, you know, when I'm thinking about applications, you know, is this application something that the biblical writer is wanting Christians to see? You know, or am I just imposing an application on the passage that popped into my mind that may not be part of the flow of the argument? So, so. I may get excited about a couple of things, but I really want the, the biblical writer, I want the passage itself to inform me how I'm going to not only teach this, but apply it. Right. Well, I think that I've been assigned uh, the exegesis of a passage, and then he will tell me what we're supposed to really do with it shortly. Um, I hope that you have your Bibles. You'll need them to follow because we're not going to take time to read the texts in detail. But the Old Testament passage that we've agreed to look at is Genesis 39. Genesis 39, sometimes summarized simply the temptation of Joseph or Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Mm. Now, especially when you are in narrative contexts like here, you must see what the unit is and how it's related to the units around. So the outline of Chapter 39, in large, bold brush, is something like this. Joseph has been sold into slavery. He's taken down to Egypt, and there he is bought as a slave. The larger context shows he was only about 17 years old by Potiphar. Uh, Almost certainly, he didn't know the Egyptian language. Most Canaanites didn't. And so he probably starts at the bottom end of things, historically, But after a few years, he is the most trusted senior slave in the establishment and is running the household, basically. We're told that God was with him and everything that Joseph touched uh, prospered because of God's blessing on his life. That's the way the chapter begins. And then the attempted seduction by uh, Potiphar's wife. We'll turn to that in a moment. And you remember how the story ends up with... uh, jail time. In other words, Joseph ends up in jail precisely for being a person of integrity. He is more interested in being a person of integrity and thought crooked than uh, being crooked and thought a person of integrity. But the interesting thing is from a literary point of view, an exegetical point of view, is that the second, uh, for the second time, at the end of the chapter, the end of the chapter begins very much in the categories of the beginning of the chapter. We're told Um, while Joseph was there in prison, verse 20, verse 21, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there and so on. In other words, the language, the comment on the blessing on Joseph's life, on the fact that God was with him and so on, it all recurs. It occurs at the beginning of the chapter, recurs at the end of the chapter, and that is what is often called a literary inclusion, an inclusio. So in other words, the chapter is not primarily about the seduction of Joseph. Mm. 
It's not primarily about uh, how to escape sexual temptation. Now, we can work through the central verses and talk a lot about the temptation that is there. And my suspicion is that most of us who have preached this chapter have focused most of our attention on those sorts of questions. What are the various things that went into Joseph's temptation? Um, the persistence of it, the sudden attack, uh, uh, the loneliness of being so far from home or whatever. And then one can think through line by line, line by line, what the text says were the arguments in Joseph's mind for fighting off this temptation. Uh, he, he starts uh, raising rhetorical questions. Um, no one is greater in this house than I am. Verse eight, my master is withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. So he has a high view of marriage. How then should I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He doesn't call it a momentary weakness or a peccadillo. He calls it a wicked thing. He sees the reference, the, the action with reference to God. Those are all exegetical details in the text, line after line after line after line that can be developed in, 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 in a, a good sermon. But if you look at the beginning and the end of the passage, then you must see that God's hand of blessing is on Joseph regardless of his circumstance. When he's sold as a slave, God's hand of blessing was upon him. When he's dumped in prison, God's hand of blessing is upon him. Joseph recognizes that. It doesn't affect his, um, his, his own personal integrity. You don't get to be the trusted warder within the prison unless you are a person of integrity. And he, he does that even while, as the subsequent chapters show, he's trying to get out. He, he, he doesn't want to stay locked in prison. He's not a fatalist, but he trusts the good hand of God and God's hand is, is displayed upon him, which leads you to observe that um, God's hand of blessing is sometimes independent of our circumstances. Yes. That, that is to say, exegetically, you have to see that God is more interested in our integrity than in ha giving us happy circumstances. And then you must also ask at this juncture, that's the unit, how it's put together. You must ask yourself, but what would the book of Genesis suffer if 39 weren't there? Mm. What is 39 adding to the book that the book really needs to be the book? So you start looking at chapter 38 and chapter 40 and following. So in chapter 38, you find Judah one of the brothers who sold him into captivity, sleeping with his stepdaughter, with his daughter-in-law rather. So here you can be a person in relative freedom and prosperity, fine cattle and all the rest, and be making a moral wreck of your life. And you can be a slave and live a life of value and integrity before the living God. In other words, each serves as a foil to the other at a purely moral level. But it's more than that. Because he's in prison, he ends up interpreting the dreams in chapter 40 of the baker and the uh, butler. And you know how that leads. After a long period of time, two years after they've been released, before the butler remembers his pledge to Joseph, it eventually leads to him, him actually uh, being released from prison and suddenly being lifted up to the role of prime minister of Egypt. So what? You see, you must not think merely personally. How does that affect the biblical narrative? Well, because of that, in the narrative of the whole book, because of that event, Joseph ends up saving not only the lives of the Egyptians, 
but the, the lives of the 70 or so of his own kinsmen according to the flesh who go down to Egypt to find food because otherwise they're going to starve to death back in the so-called land of promise, in the land of Canaan. And because of that, the messianic line is preserved. That's not just something I've pulled out from some later scripture. Chapter 49 speaks of the lion coming from the tribe of Judah. In other words, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea and became our savior because Joseph kept his zipper up. Now, don't misunderstand me. You have to remember the words of Mordecai, theologically speaking. Who knows, but God has raised you up, Esther, for such a time as this. But understand this. If you don't do your part, God will save his people by some other way. It's not as if God's hands are tied to what Joseph decides to do with his zipper. But yet, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, that is the truth of the matter. You are here today in this conference a redeemed believer because Joseph kept his zipper up. We have no idea about the consequences of the actions we take that will lead on to the second and third and fourth and 50th and 123rd uh, generation. And all of that is either hinted at or spelled out emphatically within the book of Genesis when you read the chapter within its immediate context, within its Genesis context, within its Pentateuchal context, within its canonical context, the Lord reigns. Amen. Amen. I, I brought my sermon outline uh, that I preached at First Presbyterian Church on this passage many years ago, and I was deeply relieved to find that I had outlined the passage like Dr. Carson did, uh, and had in fact highlighted the things that he did. By the way, let me just circle back to the comments that he made about the Joseph and Potiphar's wife story. This is a dangerous passage to preach in a Me Too Church to age, so be careful here. Uh, one thing that will be said is, ah, see, here is the Bible presenting all women as temptresses and seductresses and men as the innocent victims of those women. No, 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 no. Look at what Moses has just told you in chapter 38. He's told you the story of Judah and Tamar where she is shown to be right. So it, it, when you get into a passage, in the, certainly in the, certain, in the cultural moment that we're in right now, remember the, the Bible is going to have given you all sorts of ways to deflect ways that people try and use to accuse it and dismiss it. And Moses has actually helped you textually in this very passage in that way. Uh, Don is exactly right in terms of the, um, the emphasis of the passage. He's, he's emphasized really the providence of God in Joseph's life. And notice how every time the name of God, Lord, is used in the first paragraph. Look at verses 1 to 6. Every time it is used in the first paragraph, it is used to emphasize either that the Lord is present with Joseph or that his providence is blessing Joseph. Look at it every time. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and so he became a successful man. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was him. So even a pagan master sees that the Lord is with Joseph. 
And his pagan master sees how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. And then look at verse 5. It came about that from the time that he made him overseer in the house and over all that he owned, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. So the Lord doesn't even just bless Joseph. He blessed those that Joseph works among because of Joseph. And then again in verse 5, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned. And so there's an emphasis on God's presence and providence in the life of Joseph. By the way, the way I outline the passage in light of Don's description of the the parts of the passage is this way. Verses 1 to 6, God's providence to Joseph even in slavery. Verses 7 to 19, Joseph shows his commitment to God even in a dangerous and tempting situation. Verses 20 to 23, God's providence to Joseph, even in prison. So you might get sort of a health and wealth reading of God's providence if you only had verses 1 to 6. But the passage is going to end with him in prison. And it's going to show that God's providence is still on him, but that doesn't mean that you stay out of prison. Uh, And, of course, even when you get verses 7 to 19, it doesn't mean that you aren't put in very dangerous situations where you're very, very vulnerable. So in in verses 7 to 19, again, you see Joseph's temptation and resistance and Potiphar's wife's false accusations. And, by the way, Derek Kidner is one of my constant companions when I'm preaching through uh, Genesis. He will say such short, pithy phrases that, pack in not only wonderful biblical truth, but even outline uh, the passage for you. And here's what he says about verses 7 to 19. Joseph's reasons for refusing Potiphar's wife's overtures to him, Joseph's reasons for refusal were those that another man might have given for yielding. Notice he says, my, my master has given me freedom in supervising his household. Another man might have said, I've got freedom. Joseph uses that as a reason not to take his master's wife. He realizes that the only thing that his master had withheld from him was his wife. Now remember, Satan had come to Eve and said, Why did God withhold that one thing from you? Shouldn't you take it? Joseph says, he's not withheld anything from me but his wife, so I shouldn't take that. So he's almost the reverse of Eve in Genesis 39. Then he says, and this would be wrong in the eyes of God. It, it It violates the moral categories of oughtness that his God has given to him. And, and, um, so Kidner just says, notice how he, his reasons for not doing these things might have given a a weaker person, a person with less self-discipline, an excuse to actually engage in the wrong behavior. And so he says, his freedom from supervision and his rapid promotion, which have corrupted other stewards, and of course, that'll be exactly what happened to the other people that are in prison with him. They exploited their position and got in trouble. He didn't and got in trouble. But he was morally upright in what he did. Um, 
these things which would have corrupted other students and uh, stewards and his realization that one realm only was barred from him were all arguments to him for loyalty by giving the proposition its right name of wickedness he made truth his ally and by relating all of these things to God he rooted his loyalty to his master in his loyalty to God. And so you know, there's a lot to teach and apply just right out of that passage, but it's all started this, it's all part of this story of providence. And then, of course, the next scene, he's in prison. Verses 20 to 23, God's providence shown uh, to Joseph even in prison. And again, even in jail, the Lord is with Joseph. Look at verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. And I really think verse 23 is the summarizing verse giving you the theme of the whole passage. And it says, the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. So the the whole passage, you know, the whole Joseph cycle in, in Genesis is filled with emphasis on God's providence and how God is sovereign and he will rule and overrule even human wickedness for his own purposes. And this passage almost foreshadows the Genesis 50-20 passage. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good that many should be saved in the land. So I really do think Don's exactly right. If you set this down in the context, it's an important passage setting up other things that are going to happen in the story that wouldn't have happened if this hadn't happened to to Joseph, but it's really also instructing the people of God um, in how God's providence work. Uh, God can be with you and watching over you, and things can go really badly, but he always has purposes in that for your good and for his glory. Do you want to stay for a minute? Yeah, sure. Um, may I ask a question or, or two? Please. Um, I'm not disagreeing with anything you said, and I agree with your remarks on Kidner as well. Very insightful. So helpful. Uh, he has an artist, uh, an artist's pen, doesn't he? He really does. Yeah. Um, do you think that um, there is a place for breaking this chapter down into two sermons? or three sermons, maybe one on the morality of it and the other on the providence of it? You certainly could. And, and, and look, in this very time that we're living in might be a good time to do that. Uh, because you don't, you, there's so much in It's a long passage to read. If you read it well, it'll take you a few minutes to read it aloud to your congregation. And then if you, if you do each of those parts, you're, and, and you preach maybe on average for 35 minutes or so, you're, you're going to be maybe... 10 minutes apart in those, in those parts. So you, you could very well say, boy, the whole Potiphar incident is, is so potentially incendiary in the way that our culture may hear it that I'm going to break that out and explain that and then work through the passage as a whole. So you certainly could. I did it in one sermon, and I tried to be sensitive with how I handled uh, the Potiphar story, uh, the Potiphar's wife uh, story, but I certainly couldn't camp on it and address some of the misuses of it that you hear in from from otherwise good expositors will misuse the passage. So you, you certainly could. 
Do you think Joseph was a type of Christ? Mm. Uh, it, it is interesting to me that, that Joseph um, is pretty unique in the patriarchal line in Genesis, in, in, whereas Abraham is, pres- is presented with full warts. You, you don't get many, and unless you read jo- uh, Genesis 37 as expressive of a youthful hubris in Joseph that the Lord sort of knocks out of him by the providence in his life. And I have, I have friends of mine, Miles Van Pelt will argue with me about that. And he'll say, no, 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 no. That passage is that you'll notice that what Joseph says about the dreams turns out to be exactly right. And, you know, he doesn't see, I see hubris there. I'd love to know what you think about hubris in Joseph. But you do, he, he is idealized in the way that other characters, Abraham, Jacob, and others are not so I've really not thought through the typology issue. What what do you think about Joseph and typology, and what do you think about the hubris? Is there hubris in Genesis? 37? Oh, I agree with you. Okay, good, <laughs> wonderful. Yes, Carson's on my side. <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, well, on the hubris thing, it's it's hard to be sure because the text doesn't spell it out. Right. Where the text doesn't spell it out, you want to be careful about being too dogmatic right. either way. Um. And there's hubris that is the hubris of youth and immaturity. And there's hubris that is the hubris of, of arrogance and mature rebellion against God. And at the worst, it's youthful stuff. Um, it's hard to be sure. Yeah. And as for the typology thing, I think everything depends on what you mean by typology. I, th- I think that uh, there are several different types of typology in scripture. Um, in the stricter definitions, you have a typology that is grounded in a person, institution, or um, a thing that repeats with time and gradually accelerates to some fulfillment that is greater than that which pointed to it. So. Passovers like that, for example, you celebrated year after year, year after year after year. It's looking back, it's looking back, it's looking back. Then as the people go into new exiles and so on, inevitably it's beginning to look forward to next year in Jerusalem. Mm. And so it's beginning to look forward and back until Paul gets to the place where, where he says, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Well, it's not typology in that sense because it's not as if Joseph gets repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. If it, you can use the language of typology of Joseph then it seems to me it has to be cast in a slightly different way. I think there are three or four different kinds. This is the kind of typology where there are patterns of God's actions with his people that recur so so that you can see God's grace in, in the context of sin, God's providence in the context of malevolent situations and so on, all of which get played out again and again and again until you see, for example, the providence of God and the wickedness of the cross or, and so on. Right. But that's a bit different from the kind of typology where there's a pattern that keeps recurring in Scripture and where eventually the writers along the line of that pattern can say, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing part of this typological line. I doubt that Moses was saying, oh, this is a lovely picture of Jesus. This is. Right. So it's not typology in that kind of sense. And certainly some of the older commentators that, well, I say older commentators, some of the 19th century commentators made much of the typology. Yeah. You can find it, especially Scottish Calvinists writing in the 19th century, George yeah. Lawson and others like that. I was reading those and reading those with profit, but I, I actually never went the direction of talking about typology as I expounded yeah. the past. I want to be really sure before I start using that kind of language yeah. in a sermon. I think that's right. Um, I recently gave some lectures at Southern Seminary on uh, the different kinds of typology. And uh, uh, I, I'm sure that there's more to be explored in that line. One should be suspicious of the over-typologizing that is uncontrolled. Right. And Rachel's red cord is referring to the blood of Jesus and all of that, the right. standard uh, shibboleth. But on the other hand... Um, one, sh- one should remember that God has ways and patterns of dealing with his people that keep get th- getting thrown up in picture after picture after picture. Amen. Shall I turn to a New Testament passage? This one is Ephesians, and it's one that uh, Ligon Duncan chose himself. Um, 3, 14 to 21. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. So we've moved from the Old Testament to the New. We've moved from narrative uh, to articulate exposition. And in fact, we've moved in particular to a prayer, one of several prayers of Paul's. This is one of the longer ones. I'm going to take the time this time to read it and draw your attention to a few structural matters in the prayer before I outline a few exegetical details that have to be decided before Lig comes to preach it. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It's helpful to get an overall view of the development of the argument. And in this case, the, the bigger elements fall out of the text automatically. Verse 14 and verse 15 together give the ground for Paul's praying. Why does Paul pray? He offers two reasons. For this reason, we'll see what that is he's referring to in a moment. And because he is addressing the God from whom every notion of fatherhood derives. Now I'll come back to both of those in a moment. Then verse 16 to verse 19 summarizes Paul's petitions And if you take a look at the Greek text and various English translations, they're sometimes divided into three petitions as opposed to two petitions. That's a decision you've got to make yourself before you settle on your outline. In my view, 
it should be two, peti two petitions. That is, two petitions that are shaped syntactically by certain things in Greek and by two requests for power. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power. So this is a prayer for power, a certain kind of power, but it's power. And again, halfway through 17, and I pray that you, may, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints. And then uh, the last two verses, 20 and 21, are transparently a doxology. But um, although it's a doxology, it's a doxology that ends a particular prayer. So you want to know why the doxology has this shape. What, what is it in this doxology that shapes it this way as the end to the prayer? Now let's go back and look at the petitions again for a few moments. The petitions themselves are extremely dense. Yes. And what that means is that you are going to have to give a sentence or a long paragraph or some, th some thought to virtually every clause and you're helping people to make sense of each sentence and you keep repeating the sentence, adding in another clause, repeating the sentence, adding in another clause until people see what the sentence as a whole says. So, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power. The first question to ask is, is power a big theme in Ephesians? If so, where does it, where does it get introduced? And in fact... Um, it's, it's a huge theme. In another prayer of Paul, at the end of chapter 1, verse 19, Paul is talking about that great power, the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the, heaven, in the heavenly realms. So this power that focuses Paul's attention is the power of almighty God in resurrecting his son from the dead. Now he says, I pray that God may strengthen you with power. That theme keeps recurring in Ephesians. He may strengthen you with power. Where? In your inner being. By what means? Through the Spirit. With what purpose? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You see, you want all of those elements in so that you can see the focus, the locus of this first petition. What is the supply? I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power. So you do a little homework on that expression, glorious riches, and discover that it's a recurring Pauline formula that talks about the glorious riches that we have because Christ has risen from the dead and has bestowed these things upon us. Do you, do you see? So I pray that out of his glorious riches, the source of supply, there's no question about the adequacy of it. He may strengthen you with power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, through his spirit, in your inner being, not your outer being, not necessarily healing your body of cancer, but in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, I thought that Christ already dwells in our heart through faith. So you have to think about that one. Why should he write to Christians and say, I pray that he might strengthen you with power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith? And then you start thinking about it and remembering how often Paul uses expressions that are formally equivalent both for entering into the faith and for growing in the faith. They're formally equivalent, but they're different depending on the context. Does Paul know Christ? Of course he knows Christ. Is he still trying to know Christ? Yes. Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Do you see? So there's a sense in which Paul would be the first to insist that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith already. But 
It's the strong verb used for dwell, that Christ might take up his residence within us and establish it as our hearts as his own home. And now you can flesh that out in all kinds of pastoral and homiletical ways. That's the first request for power. The second, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with, now we'll come to that. Now, I pray that you being rooted and established in love, as Paul talked about love elsewhere in this book. Once again, back to chapter one. Praise be, verse three, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Small wonder then that Paul says, you being rooted and established in love, well, yes, grounded in eternity, may have power, you who have already been rooted and established in love, to grasp, well, the summary of the rest of the sentence is to grasp how big God's love really is. It's not a request that we may love God more, but that we may better grasp how big his love is for us. And this with a larger goal in view, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, verse 19, which is a Pauline formula for that you might be mature. For example, you find it very similarly expressed in 4.13, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So Paul is praying that you might have power, you folks who have been established in God's love, that you might have power, you've been established and rooted in God's love, to grasp how long and wide and high and deep is the love of God to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may know what is just not quite knowable so that you might become fully mature. Do you want to be a mature Christian? Pray that you might better grasp how much God loves you. That's what the text is saying. And then inevitably you start asking the question, when was the last time you prayed that prayer? for yourself, for your church members, and so on. So you're moving pretty clearly from direct exegesis to transparent applications that are rich and valuable in a pretty straightforward way. And the doxology in this case, it seems to me, is focused on the fact that the God whom we're praising is the one who does immeasurably more than we ask or think. That is to say, it's easy for us to become cynical about the things we ask God for. Oh, yeah, we, we pray for this because the Bible says we should pray in line with Paul, so we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Paul slaps us in the face and says, wait, wait, wait a minute. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you think or imagine, your problem is you're not asking for enough. To him be glory in the church. That is, if this praise is this prayer is answered, according to the doxology, there'll be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, world without end. And then when you go to the other end of the prayer and go back to the reasons, for this reason I kneel before the Father, and obviously it's referring to something that's in the preceding verses. But when you read the preceding verses, you discover another for this reason in 3.1. For those of you who have studied Ephesians know that 3.1 sort of peters out. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dot, 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 dot. Uh, Wait a minute. Surely you have heard about the yada, 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 yada. (laughs) It sounds, in other words, as if the for this reason in verse 14 is resumptive of the for this reason in 3.1. Which means if you want to know what the this reason is, you've got to study chapters 1 and 2. 
And the trick then is how to summarize one and two in a way that avoids beginning another whole sermon. But when you do study one and two, you discover that one and two, not three, one to 13, but chapters one and two lead actually into providing a very valid reason for praying exactly this way. Chapters one and two basically argue that God has his high purposes in redemption and adoption and election and so on to bring together two peoples, the, the, the Jews and the Gentiles, essentially all humanity into one new humanity, all one new humanity, um, which, which is uh, described in chapter two, for example, verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity of the two, thus making peace. And, um, and, and he shows the elements of, of, um, of uh, continuity and wholeness and transformation among them. We all have access to the Father by one spirit. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, you Gentiles, but fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household, built on the foundation. Now watch it. You're going to start talking about a building. And in the prayer, the first prayer is that God might so work in us by his power that we become the house, the building where God dwells. The foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now in the light of the fact that that's God's purpose in redemption, I bow my knee and I pray that God will pour out the power in you that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Do you see? In other words, the reason for praying this sort of prayer is that it's in line with gospel promises. So often our prayers are independent of gospel promises. But here Paul's prayers are strictly speaking in line with what God is doing in the gospel in any case. And if I go on any longer, I'm going to end up preaching. (laughs) He already is preaching. Uh, Okay, one of the reasons I suggested to Don that we do this passage is his exegesis and exposition of this passage has been so formative for me. Uh, Quick book plug. Years ago, Don did a conference for Australian ministers on prayer, and he later repeated some of the talks from that conference at the Cambridge University Christian Union. In both places, there was something like a quickening. The Lord did a remarkable work in people's hearts. He eventually put those, um, those expositions into a book that was initially called A Call to Spiritual Reformation priorities from Paul's prayers. That book has since been revised and republished with a title that better characterizes what it's about, Praying with Paul. You need that book in your life. His exposition of this passage in that book, hugely, not only helpful to me on preaching Ephesians, but really forming what I'm supposed to do as a minister. Because you'll notice in this prayer, Paul makes it clear he doesn't just want this for the Ephesians. He wants this for every single Christian in this world. Now, Don's already explained that from a biblical theological standpoint by pointing you back to the temple language of chapter 2. But Paul just tells you point blank in the prayer that he wants this for the Ephesians together with all the saints. So this is not some secret, mysterious thing that a few super-Christians experience. He wants the Ephesians to have this along with every other Christian. And... um, it, notice the flow of argument in the passage. By the way, just in passing, we didn't mention it, notice how Paul just naturally, almost incidentally, weaves the doctrine of the Trinity into this prayer. 
He bows his knees to the Father that the Spirit would give you power so that Christ dwells in your heart by faith so that you're filled up to all the fullness of God. So that the, the Pauline Trinitarianism is just natural as can be. Father, Spirit, Christ, God. And uh, you know, I, I really think you could sum up the Christian life in one sentence using the doctrine of the Trinity. We come to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. That's Christianity. We come to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. And you just see that woven naturally into Paul's prayer. But notice how each of the petitions are tied together by that or so that in the English text. He prays that God may grant you, verse 16, to be strengthened with power. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Middle of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the strengths what is the height, depth, breadth, and length, and to know the love of Christ. Verse 19, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So notice that eat, however you outline the passage, it's all going in the direction of verse 19, that you would be filled up to all the fullness of God. Um, now, at, as Don has already um, brought to your attention, in at least two of these prayers, you're going to be asking, but wait, I thought I already had the Spirit, but wait, I already thought that Christ dwelt in my heart by faith. I pray that you would be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner being. Paul has already told you in chapter 1 that you're sealed with the Spirit. So he, he, he wants you to have what you have. And, and so clearly, this is, the, this is the language of ongoing work of the Spirit in your life. This is the ongoing aspect of the Christian life, the, the Spirit having his way with you. In this case, he wants the Spirit to give you power. Let that make you a little bit nervous. Okay, what does he want me to have power for? Am I about to be persecuted? Am I about to go through trials? Am I going to go through tribulations? No, he's actually going to come back and, as Don has already said, repeat the power word again to tell you why he wants to have power. But already start thinking, why does he want the Spirit to give me power? Now, Paul knows that because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, we can't wrestle in our own strength. We need strength. But notice he says that strength does not come from within us. We need strength within us, but it doesn't come from within us. It comes from outside of us. It comes from the Spirit putting it in us. So he's really teaching basic things about the Christian life. You need power to live the Christian life, but it's not your power. But the power needs to be in you, but it doesn't come from within you. It comes from the work of the Spirit in you. So outside of you, into you, the power that you need. Then he says, verse 16, that you would be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being that... Verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And again, for, for Paul, the Christian life is fought at the level of the heart, meaning the desires. You know, in, in, in English parlance, we think with our minds and we feel with our hearts. So on Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day, there are little hearts everywhere, Right? Not, that's not the way mind and heart are used in the Bible. And usually when the Bible wants to talk about feel, it talks about your kidneys or your guts. Which interestingly, and we actually do that in English too. You know, boy, when I heard the news that she had cancer, 
it hit me in my gut. We mean feelings there. Paul's thinking about heart in the sense of what you set your wants on, what you set your desires on. And Paul knows that unless Jesus takes hold of your inmost desires, you can't live the Christian life. So the the Puritans, and I think Don actually says this in his exposition, the Puritans used to say that what Paul is praying is that um, the Spirit would cause Christ to make your heart a suitable habitation for him. You know, so that if somebody could look into your desires, they would say, boy, that, that person wants what Jesus wants, loves what Jesus loves, hates what Jesus hates, longs for what Jesus longs for. The desires of the heart, the, your, the inmost seat of your being has been taken occupancy by Christ. For what? Well, he comes back to the strengthened with power language again in verse 17. And really, this part of the petition runs all the way from 17 to the middle of 19. That you would have strength to comprehend what? Notice this amazing phrase, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, hold on. Did you hear what Paul just said? He wants you to know something that is beyond your capacity to know. So now he's not talking nonsense. He's clearly moved into the sphere of experience. He is very concerned that Christians know the love of God for them in Christ. Now, why pastorally is that important? Because there are so many godly Christians in this world who struggle to know that God loves them. There are so many pastors that love Jesus, believe the gospel, preach the Bible, want to serve him faithfully, that really struggle with knowing that God loves you. And Paul knows that too. And so he knows that you need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to know the love of God in Christ for you. That's hugely important. And of course, what does that lead to? Verse 19, end of the pet that you would be filled up to all the fullness of God, that you would be matured. Now, Don tells an amazing story that I have told over and over after reading his commentary. In fact, I, I preached on this passage at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia and told your story about Perry and Sandy Downs. Several people there knew Perry and Sandy and had studied under them at both Trinity and, and other places. But he tells us that Perry and Sandy Downs were foster parents. They were colleagues of Don's at Trinity, and they took in twin boys who were 18 months old who had been in something like nine different families in the first 18 months of their life, and they had been abused in some of those families. And the social workers felt like the, the boys would never be cognitively and affectively normal. And they were in the Downs home for two years before they were placed into an adoptive family. And the, when the post-testing was done on the boys, it found that the boys were completely normal. What had happened? They had experienced love like children were intended to experience from parents in the Downs home. And it had literally matured them. Now, you see why I use that story over and over. Because God's love matures Christians. This is why Paul, by the way, Robert Murray McChain said his whole ministry was based on this philosophy of ministry. 
to cause people to know the love of Christ for them that they might return that love to Christ. And, and you, you see, I think it probably flows out of these kinds of Pauline uh, uh, paradigms that you see here in Ephesians 3. What, what do I want to do in gospel ministry? I want Christians to know the love of God in Christ so that they are set free to love the unloving and the unloved in this world because of God's love to them. It matures them to give themselves away. And then, of course, he comes back to that amazing language again in the doxology that he would do beyond what you can ask or think. Now, by the way, if you think about it, this is a Pauline thing to do. In Philippians, he talks about a peace that passes understanding. Here, he wants you to know a love that passes understanding, and he wants you to have something done in you that is beyond all that you can ask or think. Paul prays big, audacious prayers because your God is a big, audacious God. And he can even cause Christians who struggle. And by the way, sometimes one of the reasons we have a hard time believing that God loves us is because of our own personal experiences in life. We may not have been loved in the context of our families. We may have experienced awful things that make it hard for us to even trust people. And so here's the Apostle Paul saying, yes, but you have something that the unbeliever doesn't have. You have the almighty Holy Spirit working to build a beachhead in your heart so that you have a way to receive the love of God. And Paul wants that because he wants Christians to be matured. So it's, it, th- th- again, go read Don's exposition of this in praying with Paul and preach this passage to your congregations. Thank you. Now the little clock down there says uh, we're just about out of time. But let me make a comment or two. Uh, and you can end up with final comments and prayers if you like. Sure. Um, now, in this last case, we did some of the same reading. The previous case, there was no collusion. Now, we had read the same commentaries and so on, but, but what I would really want you to see is that what we have, the exercise we've gone through is nothing special. It, it doesn't take superior intellect or... Uh, we just worked hard at the text, including some reading around the text, and, and we've come to remarkably similar theological conclusions. Why should that surprise us? Uh, it's one Bible, it's, yeah. it's, it's one gospel. Yeah. And, and when you, you get serious people doing serious exegesis and trying to do faithful exposition, you will find again and again and again how close they come together. And uh, I, I think that's part of what is to be taken away from this particular Amen. exercise. Amen. Yeah. yeah, and just memorize that prayer and pray it for yourself and for your people and get your people to pray it for one another. Uh, the, the Christian church would be dramatically matured if this were an aspiration that we all had. And it would enrich our ministry, our witness, our evangelism, um, and uh, the fame of the name of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, I bow my knees before you from whom every family on earth is named, that you would grant according the riches of your glory that these, my brothers and sisters in Christ, would be strengthened with power by the Spirit in their inmost beings 
so that Christ dwells in their hearts by faith so that he, that he takes control of those hearts, that he shapes those hearts so that they might be rooted and grounded in love, the love of God for them and that they might know a love that is beyond our capacity to ever fully comprehend. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. So that they might be filled up to all the fullness of God. So that they would be matured in God so that the image of God would be so restored in them that people would see their lives and say, what kind of a father must they have? Our heavenly father who loved us and in love set his heart on us before the foundation of the world to build us into a new man, into a new temple, to be his inheritance forever. Lord, do this in the way that only you can do, beyond any capacity of our asking or thinking. And Lord, get all the glory for yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.